The world is filled with people who are interested in Jesus and uh, have their own thoughts about who he is and the significance that he might have uh, for their own personal lives. But I wonder if there's ever been a time in your life where you've misunderstood the Lord. Has there ever been a time for you when you asked the Lord for a yes and he gave you a no and you misunderstood that? Or you asked for a no and he gave you a yes and you really misunderstood that, or you misunderstood one of the characters of the Lord Jesus. And the reason that I say that is because there's a lot of people in this world uh, who have a misunderstanding about Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, those of us even who are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ will perpetually be seeking to make sure that we have a correct view of who the historical Jesus is, was, and continues to be. However... Uh, I have friends, I'm sure that you have friends as well, who have a particular viewpoint of Jesus that goes something like this. Jesus was an awesome guy, did a lot of good things for needy people, fed a lot of people, was interesting to be around, to listen to, to watch. But that's about where it ends. Jesus was a great example to emulate but I'm not going to go pledging my life to Jesus. I'm not going to surrender myself to Jesus. I'm not going to pledge my allegiance to Jesus. Jesus was one in a long list of great religious people that did wonderful religious things. There is a fundamental problem with that perspective. Namely, it's impossible. <laughs> Can I just tell you that? It's impossible. Uh, the late C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him. If you haven't, I encourage you to write his name down and read his works. Incredible Christian thinker, great apologist, uh, said one time this line of reasoning he shared with the world, this perspective that we have come to adopt as this phrase called the liar, the lunatic, or Lord. Uh, C.S. Lewis articulates a viewpoint that says, it is just simply illogical for us to have the viewpoint that Jesus was a good person, a great moral teacher, a great example for us to follow, but nothing more. This is his rationale. He says, listen, Jesus clearly positioned himself to the world as God. He clearly positioned himself to the world as the one who could forgive sins. He clearly positioned himself to the world as the creator God who was there at creation. And, and so if Jesus is accurate when he says he is the Lord of all things, he is so much more than a great moral teacher and an example for us to follow. He deserves our praise and our adoration and our fellowship and our obedience. And if he isn't the Lord, then he certainly isn't a good moral teacher from which we should follow an example. Because he was either, according to C.S. Lewis, a lunatic or a liar. Now, you may have seen movies or watched uh, reports about people on planet Earth who are simple human beings who believe they're God. There's plenty of them on planet Earth and they have come and gone. And we know that they are not God. But if Jesus was in fact not Lord, and he believed that he was God, he believed that he was the Lord of all things, he isn't somebody to be followed. He is somebody with true mental illness. He is, according to C.S. Lewis, a lunatic if he isn't Lord, but he thought he was. On the other hand, what if he claimed to be Lord and he knew that he wasn't? Then again, he is not 
some great moral leader by which we should look to for an example on how to live our lives because then he's worse. He's a liar. He knew that he wasn't the Lord of all creation and yet he allowed people to bow before him and worship. He told people that he was the only one who could forgive sins. He positioned himself as Lord. So either he is or he thought he was and he's not which makes him very mentally ill, or he knew he wasn't and he positioned himself anyway, and he was a liar. Either way, not someone to emulate your life from. The reason that I share that with you is because we are going to look at a passage of Scripture today that might register for you as one of the most interesting as it relates to opposition to Jesus that you'll ever read in the New Testament. It's in Mark chapter 3. I invite you to turn there. If you have your Bible with you, maybe you have it in printed form or maybe you have it on your phone. If you don't have a printed copy of the Bible and you want one, want one, I would love to give it to you. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word. See me after the service And we would love to gift to you a copy of the Word. But this morning, we're in Mark chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at a gospel story in which people misunderstood Jesus. Much like the example that I gave to you from C.S. Lewis, who articulated that thought for us in our culture and in our time, but actually wasn't the one who invented it. In 1936, Watchman Nee also articulated the liar, lunatic, or Lord thought. And even in the mid-1800s, if you're interested to know your theological history, a Scottish theologian by the name of John Duncan called it the trilemma. He cannot be a simple moral teacher. He is either God or he is mistaken. This morning we're going to see some people in the life of Jesus who are mistaken at his identity. That's why I asked you at the beginning, have you ever misunderstood Jesus? Have you ever misdiagnosed who he was in your life or in the life of others? We're going to be looking at two groups of people who grossly misunderstood the character and the identity of Jesus. Now remember, this is chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. And already we know that the Pharisees are a group of people who have set themselves against Jesus. The Herodians are a group of people who set themselves against Jesus. And now we're going to look at two more groups of people who are having a hard time really understanding and appreciating Jesus and his ministry in the world. So let's look this morning at our Bibles. You see in your notes that we're going to do a couple of things. We are going to look at two radical accusations. I have a sneaking feeling that this morning I won't have to work very hard to point those out to you. I think that as we study the Word of God together, you're going to go, Mm, there's the first one and mm, there's the second one. So we won't have to spend a lot of time on identifying them, but I would like for us to think deeply about the implications of them and Jesus' response to those, those radical accusations. And then we're going to also seek to do some application from it. Well, we're starting in verse 20 this morning. And it says that Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. It was so full There was no place to sit down. You you couldn't even have a meal together. It was so busy there in the house in which Jesus was. And when his family heard it, 
they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and Jesus said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they all were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and arrived there and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Radical accusations, people who desperately, grossly misunderstood who Jesus was. First and foremost, his own family, his own kinfolk, we would say in the South. His family. Look at those first verses that we studied. You'll notice two things. One, it says that his family came out, the text says, to seize him. It's the same word they used to arrest it means that the family had gone together and had a meeting and said, you know what we need to do? We need to go literally put our hands on Jesus and drag him back to our house. Why? Because he's lost his mind. Now here's the God of all creation. You talk about missing the boat, people. Jesus, the Son of God, and the family's there going, he's crazy. We need to go get him. They traveled to where he was. Why? To listen to his teaching? No. To receive healing ministry? No. For a demon to be exercised? No. To support Jesus in his ministry? No. They went literally to grab him with their own hands and drag him somewhere because they thought he was crazy. Now I want to speak a word of encouragement to you just for a moment. Some of you are here and your faith and fellowship and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ has committed and created, excuse me, not committed, but created a significant difficulty between you and your family. Some of you are walking with Jesus to the implication of your family not understanding it. Your family perhaps even saying what Jesus' family said about him. That you're crazy. That you've lost your mind. That you've got religion and you need to abandon that, right? Like a lot of us are here today and our faith and fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ has caused a great disruption in our own family. I want you to know that Jesus understands that. 
he himself experienced the cost of pursuing and serving the kingdom of God at the expense of his family not understanding what it was that was his priority. So much so that they went to arrest him, saying that he's crazy, he's lost his mind. They had grossly misunderstood who Jesus was. And it may, it may very well be that there are people in your own family who have grossly misunderstood who you are because of your commitment to the kingdom of God. I want you to know that Jesus himself faced that when he was ministering, when he was here, when he was serving the kingdom of God on earth. The first radical accusation is that Jesus is crazy. Now you may look at that and go, how off do you have to be in order to think that Jesus is crazy and, and, and say that out loud? Be careful. Have you ever gone to prayer and said, Lord, what are you doing? You're close. You know, sometimes we get before God and we forget who is God and who is human. And we also run the risk of playing the part of Jesus' family where we think and misunderstand that the Lord has lost his mind, so to speak. But the second accusation is worse than the first. These scribes. Now, if you're new to church, if you've just started going to church, you just started studying your Bible, you don't know much about it, but you're into it, you're trying to learn what you can learn, understand this. The scribes, those are a religious group of people, very well educated, very, very powerful uh, in the spiritual world, in the temple in Jerusalem. They were powerful, powerful people. Like the scribes were not people that you wanted to cross. They could make life tough for you. And the scribes, when they are watching the ministry of Jesus, they also grossly misunderstand who Jesus is. Look with me in verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, these powerful religious people, were making a claim about Jesus. They said not that Jesus was crazy, but they said Jesus was evil. They said he's possessed by a demon. They said he's possessed by, by the prince of demons. They said that, that he has Satan. It says that uh, it says in, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They are accusing him not of losing his mind, but being evil and wicked. Now, do you understand why I mentioned to you C.S. Lewis at the beginning? Here are these two phrases, crazy and a liar. Satan is the prince of liars. He's the prince of deception. And here in this one text, we see a verbalization of both of those accusations. The family of Jesus says he's out of his mind. The scribes, he's a liar. The scribes, he's the master of deception. The scribes, he's evil. He's literally possessed by a demon. Well, Jesus is not one to shy away from a confrontation. So he answers them. And in the text, Jesus answers them almost as radically as they accuse him. Now, Jesus' response to the scribes uh, can basically be summarized in two words. Logically 
and cautiously. Let me explain what I mean by that. The first thing that Jesus does is he says, hey, guys, your accusation doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That's what he says. Logically, it doesn't follow. You're claiming that I am possessed by demons and fighting against demons. You're claiming that Satan is the one who's calling the shots for me, and yet I'm out here defeating him in every town and among all the people. You're claiming that the kingdom of darkness is divided against itself. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus says to them. A house can't be divided and and stand. And then he offers the caution. He says, you need to be careful. Because speaking against and standing against the work of the Holy Spirit is an eternally dangerous thing. Now, we've been looking at the the twists and turns of this story. We've tried to put ourselves there in that house and, and try to imagine what it would have been like for the family of Jesus to show up thinking that he's lost his mind and the scribes there claiming that he's demon-possessed. And so we've done a lot of thinking about this from a narrative standpoint. We're following the story and we're thinking about it, what it was like to be there. But we're going to change it up just for a second and think theologically about it. Because here, and if you grew up in church, you probably have thought about this text before because this text is the text in which we get the phrase, the unpardonable sin, the eternal sin, the unforgivable sin. Now look with me, if you would, in verse 28. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now listen to me, friends. Those of you who are online, those of you who are here, I've been saved over 20 years. If I had a dollar for every time we discuss the unpardonable sin, I could pay off everybody's mortgage here today. It is the topic of so many conversations because it's like, ooh, there's an unpardonable sin. Which one is it? And have I committed it? And we worry ourselves over this. And I suppose rightly so because if the unpardonable sin exists, we want to be very careful of it, don't we? But before we talk about what that means, Would you just look at the first thing that Jesus says before he talks about this unpardonable sin, this eternal sin? Can we just stop and be awestruck that Jesus says forgiveness is possible? I mean, look what Jesus says to these scribes. He is talking to a group of people who just accused him of being demon-possessed and under the influence of Satan himself. Not a welcoming crowd. And look what he says to them in verse 28. He even shares grace and truth with them. Truly, I tell you, all these sins can be forgiven, Jesus says. Wow. Do you know the beautiful thing about the gospel? Is that your history that you are not proud of, and that you are ashamed of, and that you try to hide from the rest of the world, God sees it and is willing to forgive it. Incredible. You 
are not beyond the reach of grace. You are not beyond the gift of mercy. These scribes who just claim that Jesus was possessed by a demon, Jesus looks at them and says, there is forgiveness for all kinds of sins. That should cause us to go, wow, I'm awestruck at the graciousness of God to forgive sins. But then he does say, however, right? He gives it in the next verse, verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, I mentioned to you how often this is discussed. And I kind of said it in a humorous way about if I had a dollar for every, for every time that I've been in this discussion but I mean this in a very serious way. At least once a month, somebody comes to me afraid they've committed the unpardonable sin. Scandalized and full of anxiety. Pastor, have I, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And I've done this and I've done it and I've done this and I've rejected this and I've done this. And I'm not proud of any of it. But am, am I guilty of the unpardonable sin? Am I beyond the reach of God? What does this mean, Pastor Zach? I want to clarify it for you, and I want to try to make it simple. Not so that you can understand it, but so that I can. <laughs> because on complex theological matters, I need it to be simple. You may understand high complexity, but I don't. So let's just break it down this way. What is Jesus saying to them? That you can't stand against the Holy Spirit of God, and think that your sins are going to be forgiven. He who blasphemes, which means to speak or stand against, he who speaks or stands against the Holy Spirit of God is committing an unpardonable sin. Now I want to say to you two things. Number one, if you're here today and you are alive, it's not too late. If you are breathing today, if you are living today, it is not too late to yield your life to the Holy Spirit of God. I want you to know that. But as it relates specifically to what is this talking about, it's saying this. There's a lot of sins that are forgiven. But if your life is a rebellion against the work of the Holy Spirit, you are committing a sin for which you will be held accountable for in eternity. You say, why is that? Well, because it is the Spirit of God that convicts our heart of sin and teaches us that we need a Savior. It is the Spirit of God that draws us into the presence of God. It is the Spirit of God that says to us, turn and surrender your life to Jesus. And so, therefore, then, if we spend our lives blaspheming, standing against the Holy Spirit of God on the day of judgment when we stand before him, we will be guilty of an eternal unpardonable sin because we will be guilty of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is gracious enough to say that right to the faces of the scribes. I'm so impressed. They're claiming that he's possessed 
And he gives it to them logically. First of all, guys, that doesn't make sense, is what he says to the, to the scribes. Satan can't be divided against Satan or he'll be conquered. Secondly, he says to the scribes, watch yourselves. Be careful. Because you're coming against the Holy Spirit of God. And you're in eternally dangerous grounds. And so do you see, understand what I'm saying? The radical accusation of Jesus is met with a radical response. Now, the second way that he responds to these radical accusations has to do with the fact that his family shows up. So all of this is happening. Jesus is doing ministry. He's in this house. It's crowded. It's hot. Everybody's stepping over everybody. It's so crowded you can't even eat, which is too crowded in my opinion. But all of this amazing stuff is happening. And then the scribes ruin everything and claim that he's possessed by a demon. And then Jesus says, come here, let me have a word with you. And then he tells them what he tells them. And then the family gets there. If it wasn't traumatic and dramatic enough, then the family arrives. Verse 31, his mother and brothers came. And they're standing outside. They sent to him and called. So whoever was outside, they said, hey, go get Jesus. Tell them we're out here for him. They sent word inside the house. And so that word kind of like ripples through the crowd. Has that ever happened to you before when you're in a group of people and something significant happens and you can see it like literally like a wave go through the group? And everybody's whispering. It happens up here sometimes, and you don't exactly know what happened. Like, you don't know if a mouse got loose and it's running around people's feet or whatever, but like you see, something distracting is happening, and it's like taking over everything. Used to, it was a bird that would be right up here, and it would literally peck the window. And, and it was the loudest thing in the world. For whatever reason, the, the sound of pecking on that window and the way that the acoustics are here, you just couldn't ignore it. You tried because you love Jesus. And you're trying to stay locked in. But, but it took over. I remember when we were shut down in the COVID era when we weren't having services here and we were taping them. I'm sorry, that's an old word. We were videoing them, right? And we were playing them online and we would be, I'd be up here just preaching up a storm to an empty room. And all of a sudden that bird would start pecking that window. We'd go outside with snowballs. And now I won't tell you what we did. This is being recorded. I don't want anybody to know. The point I'm trying to make before I got distracted of my own nonsense is that all of a sudden the family's there. And they send word and they call for Jesus. Now think about that. The King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're going to send for him and call. First of all, that's the improper position of human beings to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they do. And so it starts buzzing around inside of the house and they call for him. And look with me if you would. It's right here in the text. It says in verse 32, the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Radical accusation, radical response. And he looking about the house who sat around him and he said, 
here are my mother and my brothers. Now there's an exclamation point there. So this got loud. Like he exclaimed this. Here is my family. The people who do the will of God is my family. Powerful thought. Powerful thought. What that means is that when you are in the kingdom of God, you're in a family. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're feeling this, or maybe you've been visiting for weeks or maybe even months. And you may have heard us talk about the fellowship family. You may have seen it in writing, the family at the fellowship. We have a specific theological viewpoint that is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're our family. You literally belong to the family of God. That's why the way that we treat our family overseas is so significant. We may not hear from them often. We may not think of them, but they are our family. We need to think of them often. The way that we support our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ is important because they're our family. And in a very real sense of the word, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I are in family together. It's important for us to, to remember that. And so now it, it, it's, it makes sense, right? The, why, the reason that we started with C.S. Lewis and we said, you know, he, he shared, look, Jesus is a liar. He's crazy or he's who he said he was. Because two groups of people right here in this scripture struggle with understanding who Jesus was. They were around Jesus. They had heard Jesus. They had watched Jesus. They had thought about Jesus. They had conversations with Jesus. They still misunderstood him. They still misunderstood who Jesus was. For a whole host of reasons that we could do our own series on, like why did the scribes perpetually put themselves against Jesus? Why was the family of Jesus thinking that he had lost his mind? Like what goes into all of that? It's all intriguing. But really what I want to do right now is to bring us to a focus on the most important question that you can ask yourself. And it's not, what did Jesus' family think about Jesus? And it's not, who did the scribes think that Jesus was? The real question that's important for you to ask an answer and for me to ask an answer, and we have it in our notes this morning, the most important question, what is my actual response to the historical and living Jesus? His family thought he had lost his mind. The scribes thought that he was possessed. Okay, that's interesting. Noteworthy on a Sunday morning of teaching from the Word of God. But what is eternally significant for you is who do you say that Jesus is? What is your actual response to the historical Jesus? I say actual because it's easy for us to project to others what we think they want to hear. In fact, young people do this sometimes. They project to their parents who they think they want, the parents want them to be, and they pretend to be Christian. And then when they leave the house and move out or go to college or whatever, you see that I don't know necessarily that that was their faith. They were adopting the faith of someone else. And sometimes we do that, right? Like sometimes we come to church and we have this storm of of faith going on inside of us. And we're struggling to really make sense of who Jesus is, but we pretend to have it all together. We act like 
We are people of deep, deep faith. And really deep down, we're kind of like Jesus' family going, Lord, what are you doing here? I want you to be free from that. I want you to know that you don't have to pretend here. But the most important question that you will ever answer is what is your actual response to the historical Jesus? Not how does Pastor Zach want you to respond or the rest of the elders or your Bible study leaders or your small group leaders or your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your friends. Those are all interesting questions. But the most important question is, what is your actual response to Jesus? I'm sensitive to this because I played the game for years. I would tell my parents I love God. There was no love of God in my heart. I was a fraud. And it wasn't until I was there with a friend of mine who was a new friend and and. And we were talking, and this friend was more like a mentor for me. And he, he said to me, Zach, you know what your problem is? And you know, anytime somebody says that as a beginning, you're about to be blessed, right? You're like, you're like well, no, but I bet I'm about to find out. And he said to me, you know, here's the problem that you have, Zach. You think that because you believe in God and because you want God to solve all of your problems, that you're a Christian. He said, that doesn't make you a Christian. Is it bad? No, it's not bad. But, but really, Zach, what you need to do is to move beyond that. And you need to surrender to the Lord Jesus, not the bad things that you want to be saved from, but everything. You need to give your full life to Jesus. And instead of picking and choosing, just saying, well, God, if this is bad, I want you to take it and help me and fix this for me and put it all back together so that I can go on with my life. He said, that's what's got you in some trouble. What you need to do is you need to give everything to Jesus. And you need to receive him as the Lord of your whole life. And then he said, are you willing to do that? And my life forever changed because my actual response to the historical Jesus was, I give you everything. And I can so identify with groups of people in the Bible who misunderstand Jesus because I've been walking with Jesus for over 20 years now and I still misunderstand him sometimes. It is the most humbling thing in the world to misunderstand the same Lord that you've been walking with for 20 years. But I still do it. The most important question you'll ever answer is who and how do I actually respond to Jesus? I hope that you've actually surrendered your life to Jesus. That you're not pretending that you're not acting, that you're not doing the Christian steps to please somebody and just make them believe that you're walking with God, but that you have actually yielded your life to Jesus. Now, if you have your notes in front of you, you see that 
There are some commands for daily living. Let me give you a a different way to understand these. These are things that have literally helped me. (laughs) These are things that have helped Pastor Zach on his journey of trying not to misunderstand Jesus and what Jesus is doing in my life. That's a long title. That's why I shortened it. (laughs) Scriptural commands for daily living. I want to share these with you because I believe that if you will uh, take these four and not just know them, but practice them on a regular basis, they will help you immensely. They will really help you not just put down a foundation for faith, but for those of you who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, I believe that they will help keep you on the road of faith. The first is to allow Scripture to define your view of Jesus. Do you know why the family of Jesus thought he had lost his mind? Because they were processing what Jesus was saying and doing through their limited understanding. Do you know why the scribes partly were against the things of Jesus? Because they were looking at Jesus through the lens of power. Jesus was threatening their power that they had religiously. They felt threatened by that, so they came against him. And so the same is true for you. You have to determine through what lens are you going to choose to view Jesus. Where are you going to turn to to discover who the historical Jesus was? How are you going to really come to this place where you're confident in your understanding of who Jesus is? I think that we need to allow Scripture to define our view and our perspective and our understanding of Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says, All of Scripture is inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching and correcting, training in righteousness. The the Bible is a safe place to run to, to say, I need to understand more deeply who this Jesus figure is in the course of human history. Allow the scripture to define that for you. The second thing is to trust the Lord over your personal understanding. That's another reason that the family got it wrong that day with Jesus. You know, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do you have your own personal understanding? Yes. Are you aware of it? Yes. Do you value it highly? Probably yes. But you know what Proverbs says? Don't lean on it. Because when you lean on it, it's going it's to fail you and you're going to fall on your face. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord and he will make your path straight. I understand it's easier for the preacher to stand up here and spout that off than it is to actually do it. Because your understanding is your understanding. You trust your understanding because you're speaking it in your own language. It's got your voice and you're familiar with your voice and you trust your voice and and it's speaking to you your own personal understanding and and you listen to it enough and you start to shake your head and you start to go yeah that's probably right let me go with no listen the bible says trust the lord don't lean on your understanding lean on the lord and i tell you it's easier to say it than it is to do it i get it But if we want to lock in on a rich, meaningful, understanding relationship with Jesus, we've got to practice that discipline of trusting the Lord over 
our own personal understanding. We get it wrong sometimes. We misunderstand things sometimes. Our understanding isn't perfect sometimes. For me, oftentimes. So what do I need to do on a daily basis? I need to allow Scripture to shape my view of Jesus. I need to trust the Lord over my personal understanding. Three, I need to change my false views or responses to Jesus. The Bible term for change is repent. So to the extent that the Bible illuminates for me things about Jesus that are new or something that I have not considered before or contradictory to what I thought, I need to be prepared to repent from that. Now, I told you I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years I've studied theologically in universities. I've been walking with God personally. I've been in a lot of Bible studies. I've learned a lot of stuff about Jesus, and I still get it wrong sometimes. And I have to be ready to change my perspective when the Word of God calls for it. Uh, Paul, an apostle, uh, did a lot of missionary journeys. He finds himself in Athens one day at this place called the Areopagus fascinating story. Acts 17, if you want to go and study it. He is there preaching the gospel to a bunch of philosophers. And he's talking to them about their perspective of Jesus, almost exactly what we're looking at today. And he says to them that in the past, God was patient with people's ignorance about Jesus. But today, God calls all humans to repent and to put their faith in Jesus. That's in Acts 17. And I want to be prepared that if I'm ever in the situation where I'm misunderstanding Jesus, then I'm prepared to change my view and my response to Jesus. The fourth is to join the family of God. Now for me, I've joined the family of God. But I want to live my life on a daily basis with the understanding that there is a global, heavenly family of which I'm a participant. I have brothers and sisters that I've never met living in places like China and Canada and South America and Europe and Antarctica. If people live in Antarctica, I don't even know. But all over, I am a part of a cosmic, heavenly family. Because when Jesus said, who is my family? Those who do the will of God. I'm a part of that. And I'm closing this morning by pleading with you to reflect on your life and ask yourself, am I a part of the family of God? Not do I believe in God. Not do I know that there's a family of God. Not do I attend the fellowship regularly. Not do I have spiritual or religious thoughts. All of that is fine. But I'm asking you today to make sure, to make sure that you are in the family of God because you have surrendered your life to Jesus. If you haven't done that, would you do it this morning? Would you choose to start a new life today? A life where you have examined yourself and the Lord and you said today I want Jesus to be my Lord I want him to forgive me to lead me, to guide me 
to be my Lord both in eternity and today. I hope that you're in the family of God. There's always room for one more in the family of God. Would you bow with me? Lord, we close our time this morning by pondering in our hearts how to respond to such a bizarre event in your life here on earth. Let your family show up to this house claiming that you've lost your mind. The scribes are accusing you of being possessed. And then the lessons that we learn for our lives from that. It has been both intriguing and challenging at the same time. But we do understand, Lord, that the most important question is, what is our actual response? And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here as they go out into a world of pain and hurt this week to jobs, to classes, to school, to classmates, to co-workers, to family members, to every place that we'll be and everyone that we will encounter, that we would be a very glorious extension of the family of God and that every place that we are, we will bless the world around us. Thank you, Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit. We certainly don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We don't want to speak or act against the work of the Spirit in our lives at all. Teach us, Lord, to be moldable and hungry to be shaped by the Spirit of God. Thank you for the Word of God, for a rich time of worship and for the vision and goal of our church to raise important funding for those who are working with refugees in Ukraine. We love you, Lord. We thank you for one more good Sunday gather together and lift up the praises of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.